Um, we're going to be in Judges and Ruth this morning. All right, so why don't we pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our morning and this Lord's Day. We thank you for this weekly pattern of gathering for corporate worship and the encouragement that it is to us, the challenge and help it is. We pray, Father, that we would do more than go through the motions today, that we would truly and sincerely engage with you from our hearts in every part of our worship this morning, whether it's prayer, listening to the word read and taught and preached, or uh, in uh, times of singing songs and hymns, spiritual songs, or even our fellowship, that we would be intentional, that we would be mindful of your presence, that we would be engaging with you, that we would be humbling ourselves and uh, seeking to grow this morning and also, above everything else, to glorify and honor you. And even as we study uh, the Old Testament today, and particularly Judges and Ruth, we ask that by your Spirit, you would open this book up, these books up to our soul, give us understanding, and also incline our hearts, we pray, to believe and obey the teaching of your word in these portions of Holy Scripture. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, so Judges and Ruth are what we're going to cover today, two in one. They really, in many ways, go together, so I'll hope to show you that as we go along. It doesn't mean we have quite a bit to cover, so I'm going to try to focus on working through at a relatively rapid clip. But let's start with the book of Judges and just start with some introductory matters. Like many of the books in the Old Testament, we don't know who wrote the book of Judges. It doesn't say, it doesn't claim an author, uh, and there's really nothing in other parts of Scripture which would tell us. In terms of the date, it is, there are some indications regarding the date. One is, first of all, there are multiple times it says in those days there was no king in Israel, which means... When it was written, what do we know about when it was written? There was a king in Israel, right? <laughs> so it, was, it had to have been written at least by the time Saul began to reign, right? Because that's when there finally was a king in Israel. Also, there's an interesting little remark in chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, The Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem actually was in the territory of Benjamin. That's why it says that. But the fact that there's no, that there's a mention of the Jebusites still uh, basically occupying the city is interesting because in 2 Samuel 5, David, once he had begun to reign in Hebron, do you remember how he reigned for seven years in Hebron and then it finally united the kingdom, right? And then he, but in 2 Samuel 5, he conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital. If the Jebusites were still occupying Jerusalem, that would indicate that it hasn't been conquered yet, which would push the date, yes, during the time of the monarchy, but prior to David conquering Jerusalem, right? So early on in David's reign or during the reign of Saul, right? Also, it's interesting that in the book of Judges, you see two major cities mentioned. One is Gibeah, which is the birthplace of Saul. And one is 
Jerusalem were and in the realm of Bethlehem and Judah, which was the birthplace of David. And as you can imagine, the men of Gibeah and the city of Gibeah come off really bad. And there's a more positive note with respect to Bethlehem, which seems to imply that perhaps the whole controversy and vying between Saul and David, right, uh, and the two competing claims to royal power may be in the background of this book being written, that, that it perhaps it has in mind an apologetic for the Davidic monarchy over against Saul's monarchy. And as you get to the end of the book, what does it say? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the implication is that we need a king. We need a king and not one from Gibeah, but one from Bethlehem, right? So that would indicate that perhaps it was written during Saul's reign or when there was still this controversy where you had Saul's son reigning under, what was his general's name? But Saul reigning in the north and then Ju- and David reigning in Hebron. And there was this controversy. You remember there, they, there was a battle between the men of Saul and the men of David. May have been written during that period, right? But that seems to be the period in which it was written. There is an interesting note in chapter 18, verse 30 through 31, which says, until the captivity of the land. And it, when you first hear the language of captivity, you think, oh, well, that's like the exile. But probably if it was written in Saul's reign or the early part of David's reign, then obviously it wouldn't be talking about the exilic captivity, but rather the, the captivity of the land when the Philistines began to hold sway, when the Philistines were had held sway in the land, which would have really extended into the reign of Saul. Finally, David later on would drive the Philistines completely out. So that's a little bit about the date, some interesting little notes, but that would push it early on in Israel's history, not long after the events that it's talking about. Uh, The recipients would obviously be the nation of Israel, and of course the genre, the type of literature, is again its historical narrative. So any questions on this before we move forward? Any questions? Okay. Judges in the Old Testament. So few things to say about this. Um, The book of Judges, if you look and you, obviously Judges comes right after Joshua in our Bible. So we naturally think, right? Well, it's the next stitch. But if you think of them as two books written by different people, Joshua and Judges, then at different times even, you might think, well, how do we know that really Judges is appropriately after Joshua? And if you look at the book of Judges, you can recognize very quickly that the author is intentionally picking up the storyline of the Old Testament, that is, the history of the nation of Israel, immediately after the book of Joshua. And you see that in the sense that the book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death. Like, those are the last verses of the book of Joshua, right? It talks about it. Just like Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death, Joshua ends with Joshua's death. And what's the first line of the book of Joshua when you look there? After the death of Joshua, right? The people did. So it's explicitly tying you in to immediately after the end of the book of Joshua. 
And then also, thematically, when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, what has happened is that the conquest, they, they have conquered the land under Joshua's leadership, but there are still Canaanites remaining. And so you remember in the second to last chapter, chapter 23, Joshua makes this urgent appeal to the nation to make sure you, you each go to your territory and drive out the Canaanites that remain. Otherwise, right, dot, dot, dot. Well, the book of Judges begins with that very issue. Like, did they drive out the remaining Canaanites? That's really what is being talked about in Joshua 1 and 2. And guess what you hear? They did not, right? So, both in terms of the actual opening line of Judges, but also the, the story that it picks up is following right on the heels of the book of Joshua. So, it's appropriate that your Bibles have put that book right after the book of Joshua, because it really chronologically and thematically is picking up the story that Joshua left off. If you look at the book of Judges, it tells you the story of Israel's history from the death of Joshua after the conquest to just before the birth of Samuel prior to the rise of the monarchy. And, and by the time you get to the end of Judges, the monarchy, in other words, the kingdom of Israel, is beginning to come into view because it ends. The very last line of the book of Judges is... In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it's, it's in leading you into the book of 1 Samuel, because it's anticipating the need for a king. And then what's 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel about? The rise of Saul and, and David, right? So the beginning of the monarchy. Okay, so this is where Judges fits into the Old Testament. Any, any questions on that? Now let's get into the contents of the book of Judges, all right? What's in it? And I'll give you a little outline. If you look, and it would be helpful for you to just open up to Judges 1 and kind of follow along, look at the headings, kind of scan over the contents as we're going along. If you, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. So you remember the situation? In Joshua, the Lord had allotted portions of the land to each tribe. And then he had, Joshua had commanded them to go to their allotted portions and drive out the remaining Canaanites from each of their portions as a tribe. And now we see a good start, right? They ask the Lord, okay, which of us should start first? And lo and behold, of course, it's always Judah, isn't it? They're the largest and strongest of the tribes, the most prominent tribe, and they're going to go and do it. And when you look at Judah, you see that they're partially successful, but there's still some Canaanites that remain. And, and then when you move through the chapter, you see that it just gets worse and worse. So that by the end, you see that the tribe of Dan didn't even inhabit their territory at all. They had to. They just left and went. Well, at least some of them remained in their territory, but by and large, they actually had to leave and try to get some other part of the land for themselves. And they actually traveled far up into the north, even though their territory was in the south by Judah. They traveled all the way to the northern part to find a piece of land. And that's why, in the north of Israel, there was the city of called Dan, even though their territory is down here. So whenever they would talk about the 
the length of the land, they would say, from Dan to Beersheba, because Dan was up in the north. So it just got worse, right? There was less and less ability to conquer the Canaanites. So that by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, it's just failure. They have not driven out the Canaanites. Chapter 2, what chapter 2 does is it begins with a prophet going to Israel saying, you haven't done what the Lord commanded. And now the Lord's going to stop driving out the Canaanites from the land. And these Canaanites are going to be, they're going to be a trial for you. And then in chapter 2, in the rest of the chapter, what the author does is he describes a pattern that is going to be repeated. So he describes the book of Judges in a nutshell, right? And he describes a pattern that's going to be repeated again and again throughout the book. And the pattern is that the Israelites turn away from the Lord to serve the gods of the Canaanites, whom they have failed to drive out, which the Lord had predicted would happen, right? Then the Lord, in his anger, gives them over to their surrounding enemies who oppress them. And then, out of pity... The Lord sees them in their oppression. Oftentimes they actually cry out to the Lord for help. He raises up a deliverer in his mercy, a judge to deliver them. And as long as the judge lives, they sort of enjoy peace. But then when the judge dies, they go back to worshiping idols, sometimes even before the death of the judge. And they become even worse than they were before, right? So this is... Many people have identified that there's this cycle in the book of Judges. And so each time there's the the cycle, uh, each of the cycles features a new judge. And those are the names that we know, right? Samson and Jephthah and Barak and um, and on and on. So chapter 2 summarizes that cycle, that pattern. And then, starting in chapter 3 you see that that cycle, successive cycles unfold. So chapter 3, all the way through chapter 16, the bulk of the book is one successive cycle after another. And remember, some have called it a downward spiral, right? Because the cycles get bigger and worse. So that could be the way to picture the, the book of Judges, is a downward spiral into greater and greater idolatry and oppression. So you have the Othniel cycle. He's really sort of the ideal judge. He was part of the original generation of Israelites that conquered Canaan. And then in the second part of chapter 3, you see God raising up Ehud. Interestingly, unlike Othniel, there's no mention of God actually raising him up or the Spirit of God coming upon him. He just is described as delivering Israel, and in a sort of gruesome way, and I'll let you read the, uh, that story. And then you have the Deborah cycle, um, and I say Deborah because she's the one identified as the judge, even though the military leader, do you guys remember his name? Starts with a B. Barak, right? But the text is actually emphatic to say that the men like Barak aren't leading. 
And so who steps into the void? God raises up a female judge. And it's sort of an indictment upon Israel that the men wouldn't lead that. In fact, in the story, the man, the military leader, Barak, says, I'm not going to go out to battle unless you, Deborah, or uh, Deborah, come with me, right? And so, so Deborah says, for that reason, it's going to be a woman that delivers Israel rather than you. And it turns out to be Jael. I looked for pictures of that, but it was a little too uh, gruesome to put up there. She nails a tent peg through the head of the leader of the uh, Canaanite army. Then you have the Gideon cycle. Gideon starts well, but ends badly. And by the time you get to the end of Gideon, you have a man named Abimelech, who he sort of, the commentators have called him an anti-judge, right? Like, Everything you wouldn't want in a judge. And then he dies in an ignoble way. And God raises up another judge. But in this time, it starts with a delay where God says, that's it. You know, you keep doing this. I'm not going to raise up any more judges. But then finally he relents and he raises up an unlikely deliverer. And Jephthah is sort of this kind of sketchy character and yet God chooses him to deliver Israel. And, and then at the very end, his victory is tarnished by this rash vow that he makes to sacrifice the, the first thing that enters back into Jerusalem. It turns out to be his own daughter, and he sacrifices her. And, and the whole thing is just typical of judges, where it's just you know one forehead slap after another, right? And then finally, you have the Samson cycle. And what's interesting about Samson is this isn't like a... Samson doesn't provide any kind of comprehensive deliverance. It's really more limited. It's here and there that he defeats the Philistines, but the Philistines remain in power the whole time. And also, Samson is a very sketchy character, probably the worst of them all. He's immoral, he's sort of rash and arrogant, and he's really, in many ways, commentators have noticed that he is eerily similar, his life, to the history of the whole nation, called by God, given privileges by God, and even at times doing things that are, by God's power, these great things, but at the same time, a man uh, of uh, moral and spiritual compromise, right? Just like Israel. And so he's this sort of enigmatic character. And there's also... So, you know, interesting patterns established with Samson where he ends up conquering more Philistines in his death than he did in his life, which, which leaves the reader thinking. One more thing about this that is interesting. Can you notice another pattern as these cycles unfold? What's another pattern that you notice besides the sort of pattern I talked about? Can you notice anything about it? None of them are really much of a leader. Right. Um, right. I, I, Except for Othniel. Yeah. yeah. So they get... He starts out pretty good and then right. sort of falls flat. Yeah, each judge sort of gets worse, right? Right. Yeah. That's one uh, pattern. Deborah was good yeah. in what she was trying to get them to do, but right. they were... I don't know if they were clueless or... <laughs> Well, starting with Gideon, you begin to have moral 
decline. lapses yeah. and that get worse and worse. So there is sort of a, a decline. But what's interesting about that is that you would think that the text would talk more about the better judges, the ones at the beginning. But what happens is that the text, the stories get longer. Did you notice that? Half a chapter for Othniel, half for Ehud, two for Deborah, three for Gideon, right? Three for Jephthah, and then, what is it, 13, 14, 15, 16, four for Samson. So the text talks more about each successive judge, but the story gets worse and worse and worse as you go along, right? So it's, it's all following these sort of downward spiral pattern. Now, the last five chapters... All of a sudden, you're introduced to two main stories. Two stories. Now, these stories don't necessarily chronologically follow the previous section. These are stories that probably occurred somewhere in the midst of those other stories. So the point of the story is not the point of these stories at the end is not necessarily to take the history of Israel one step further. The because each of those judges were sort of regional figures. They, they belonged to certain regions. So when they delivered Israel, it wasn't like they delivered all Israel. It was that they delivered certain portions of Israel from certain enemies. But so, so these, it's not surprising that these stories may have happened somewhere in the, in the middle of all that. The point of the story is not chronological. The point of the story is illustrative, right? The author wants to help you to grasp something about the state of Israel during this period. And the two main stories have each have something about Israel that they want you to see. So, first of all, you have Israel's spiritual apostasy, their rejection of God, their descent into idolatry. And it's illustrated by this story of a Levite. Now think about it. Uh, what is a Levite supposed to do? Serve God. Yeah, they're supposed to be sort of quintessential servants, right? They're serving at the tabernacle. The priests were Levites, but all the Levites were to be specially set apart unto God, right? For service. So you have this Levite wandering around the country. He becomes, hires himself out to be a priest for the household idols of a single man named Micah. And by the end of the story, he abandons Micah, steals the idols, and goes to become a priest of the Danites, right? Now, when you look at that, the story begins and it ends with a phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now when it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it means they're not following God's law, they're just going their own way. So it's spiritual chaos. So the, the emphasis here is upon the worship of Israel, right? A Levite and idols and all this stuff. And it's emphasizing the, that they had gone astray. They were just, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And that led to more a spiritual apostasy. Their worship was now completely chaotic. Now, what's interesting is I, I mentioned it up there in blue, but you get, so... Have you ever read a story where you, you're reading along, you're reading along, and then at the very end, something is revealed that's like, aha, 
That's what this makes it even worse. Well, that's what happens in this story. If you if you look in chapter 18, verse 30, this is the, the first story about Micah and this Levite and the idols. You get to the very end and it says, and the people of Dan, so the Danites have taken this Levite as their own personal priest and to serve as a sort of a priest for these idols. It says, Dan, the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, first time he's identified by name, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. House of God's over at Shiloh. This Levite, who turns out to be the, the grandson of Moses, is serving in the house of an idol far away from the tabernacle. So you see, it's, it's supposed to just be like a gut punch, like, oh, here we are, you know, two generations away from Moses, and, and this is what's going on in Israel. Right? It's, it's supposed to just be like, oh, spiritual chaos and apostasy. Now, that's bad. But then the next story focuses on a different type of chaos, a moral chaos, a moral degeneration of Israel, right? And in this story, you have um, a, a man, a Lev- another Levite, who is from, I think, the tribe of Ephraim, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remotest parts of the hill country of Ephraim. So the Levites were scattered all over. Remember, they didn't have their own territory. He lived in Ephraim. He took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, right? Ah, birthplace of David. His concubine leaves him. She's, she's unfaithful to him. She runs to her father's house to escape him. He goes to recover her. And he returns through Gibeah, so you have Bethlehem of Judah is where he goes. And, and by the way, the text goes to, to great lengths to emphasize how hospitable his father-in-law, who lived in Bethlehem of Judah, David's birthplace, was to him. And then he travels back through Gibeah, the birthplace of who? Saul. And they're not hospitable. Instead, he ends up sitting in the square of the city, no one invites him in. And a, a, a foreigner who, were, who was living in the city sees him in the square and says, Hey, you got to Hey, come to my house. I'll put you up for the night. And he says, No, no, we'll, we'll stay in the city square. No, 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 no. You must come to my house. Don't stay in the city square, right? Sure enough, at night, the men of the city come, bang on the door, demand to have the man that they may know him. In other words, sexual immorality. They want to rape the man, the Levite who is traveling through. And in this case, the owner is able to, the, the owner is trying to say, no, you know, don't do this wicked thing. The Levite comes out and gives his concubine to, to the men. And they rape her throughout the night until it, set, it gives this vivid picture that she dies and, while she's clinging to the doorstep of the house. 
And then the storyline follows through what, how Israel took action to punish the men of Gibeah for what they had did until the tribe was almost wiped out. Now, some things to note about this. Obviously, this is morally horrifying, and that's what it's supposed to indicate, right? You're supposed to be horrified that Israel has done this, a tribe in Israel. But there's something more. Even as I was telling you that story, do you see, you probably heard it, echoes of a previous story. The story that in the Bible became sort of quintessential for moral wickedness, wasn't it? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, you see that the writer of Judges is intentionally alluding to that story to describe what happened in Israel. In fact, scholars have noticed that 25% of the words in both stories are the same. He uses, in other words, a lot of the same vocabulary to describe. And not only are the events very similar, but the author uses 69 Hebrew words, which was the exact length of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. So, you see, the author is doing everything he can to say, this is what happened to Israel. And, and by the way, the story's bracketed by this line, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they weren't following God's law, they were doing what they wanted, and here's what happened. Instead of spiritual apostasy, this is emphasizing moral degeneration. They became like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he's communicating. Now, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed by fire out of heaven. And we're meant to see that this is the judgment that Israel deserved too, right? So, the book ends by communicating that Israel has, through these two illustrative stories that each pack this unique punch to demonstrate just how morally and spiritually degraded Israel had become during this time. And this line that begins and ends the section and begins and ends each of those two stories, it's repeated four times, the beginning and the ending of each story. And the whole book, by the way, look, turn to the last line of the book, 21, 25, and you see it there. It ends on this note. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when you hear that, what do you think is being communicated by that? What's communicated by that repeated line four times? Well, the king is, is actually God. I think. Yes. And so they don't have a mortal person leading them either. Right, so I think while... There is this underlying, you know, why was there no human king? Because Israel was to recognize God as their king, right? However, this line is referring to the fact that there was no human king in Israel, right? But do you see, it's that, that fact, in those days there was no king in Israel, it's almost, it's presented like an explanation. This, and, and for that reason, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I think it's clear that he's presenting Israel's moral and spiritual chaos as being the result of the fact that there was no king, right? The whole book emphasizes it in the sense that God raises up a judge, a leader, who would then lead them in covenant fidelity, right? But then as soon as the judge dies, no more. 
So throughout the book, you're like, we need a better judge. We need a better judge. We need a better judge. And the book ends with, there is no king. And for that reason, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So you end the book with this thing, like, we need a king. Well, then what's the next book? Right? Or what's the, you got Ruth, and we'll talk about that, but 1st, 2nd Samuel, it answers that, right? It, it says, and guess what? God raised up a king, right? Now, there's things to be said there because you go, wait a second, wasn't, a king a, wasn't asking for a king a bad thing? Well, yes, asking for a king like all the other nations. So God provided a king after his own heart. And, and by the way, this is not just judges. It's the whole storyline of the Bible is leading toward a king. So just to sort of wet your whistle, you know, judges picks up a thread that ultimately comes to its consummation in, you know, the one whom the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, right? Or the angel saying to Gabriel, or the angel Gabriel saying to Mary, and he shall sit on the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end, right? So, this is the book of Judges. Any, any questions so far? I'm just going to highlight a few things that it teaches besides what I've already mentioned. Any questions so far? Okay, what does Judges teach? Well, for one thing, it teaches the depravity of the human heart, right? We're not, we're not to stand over the book of Judges and go, I just can't believe how wicked they were, right? I mean, we share the same sin nature. It's saying, left to ourselves... This is what happens. In some ways, Romans 1 tells us, right? Romans 1 and 2 tells us this is the cycle that all human beings go through, right? They exchange the truth of God for a lie. God gives them over to the lust of their heart for all manner of wickedness. This is human beings. Also, the insufficiency of the Old Covenant. Israel needed something more. The the, the Old Covenant was not sufficient to restrain their depravity. They needed better blessings, blessings that would get to their hearts and change them from the inside. And also of divine mercy, I mean, how wicked Israel was, and yet, unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, God doesn't abandon Israel, doesn't destroy them with fire out of heaven. He keeps raising up judges. You know, every time that they sinned, it's not just that they're, you know, missing the mark a little bit or making mistakes. They're exchanging their covenant partner, God, for idols. Well, that's spiritual adultery against God, and yet he is continually merciful toward them, raises up, delivers them from their oppression. So divine mercy. And then, finally, the need for a king, which I've already talked about, so I won't say much more. But I I would point out that the need, the idea of a king coming to reign from Israel was not unprecedented at this point in the Bible, right? You have a prophecy that a king would come out of Judah's line in Genesis 49. You have another prophecy in Numbers that Balaam talks about, a a star rising out of Jacob, right? A king. Uh, And you also have Deuteronomy 17 where, where the Lord says, and when you get into the land, and when you appoint a king, this is what he should do. So there already was this anticipation of a king, 
So judges looking for a king is not, you know, it's not like unprecedented. Okay. Ruth. So the next book in your English Bible is Ruth. A few things about introductory. We don't know who the author was, again. The date is a little bit interesting. Ultimately, we don't know, but there does, I mean, the whole book is ultimately telling you, and I mean, obviously, you guys have read the book before, so I'm not, I'm not like bursting the, giving away the ending here. You know the ending, but you get to the end and the whole, you realize that the whole book is telling you the story of how uh, David's line was preserved. So there's a sense in which whoever wrote it in those early days clearly wanted to give a, he was clearly trying to lionize, defend, honor the Davidic reign. We don't know exactly when he, when he wrote, but he clearly had David in mind and David's reign in mind, which makes you think that perhaps he did write sometime during David's reign for the purpose of defending the Davidic monarchy. And he also asked, like, why would you want, need to feel the need to defend it if you're, say, at the end of his reign when he's well-established and prosperous? So perhaps it was more toward the beginning where there was this need to say, why David? Why not Saul? Uh, well, and he tells you why. Because God was behind David. And that's what this book is about. The recipients, the nation of Israel, the genre historical uh, narrative. The setting, this is very interesting. It's actually very important to understanding the meaning of the book of Ruth. The book opens with this line. In the days when the judges ruled. Aha! So, this story that is about to be told took place during all that, right? During the time of the judges. Now, when you hear the time of the judges, you go, oh, that was a good time. You know, we got to get back to that. You know, like we say, oh, the 1950s, that they were so great. That was a time of boom and prosperity in America, a golden age, right? Do you say that about the time of the judges? No, you look back at that time with shame and sorrow and regret. But it's saying, I want to tell you the story of something that happened during those dark days of the judges. That's what Ruth is about. And in fact, there's this striking contrast between Ruth and Judges, isn't there? When you read Judges, everything is bad. Bad, 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 as worse as it can get. When you read Ruth, there's nothing bad. There really is almost nothing bad. It's all positive. It's all... It starts out in a, in a dark place with Naomi and the death of her children, but everything just goes up, right? And everyone in the book is doing what they should, right? So there's this contrast. In the days that the judges were judging, those dark, terrible days, something was happening that I want to tell you about that was positive, right? In the book of Ruth. Not only does it say in the days that the judges were judging, but the setting of Ruth, it says there was a famine in the land. Now, you know the old covenant law. It says if you break the law, these curses will come upon you, right? And one of those curses was what? Famine, right? Pestilence, warfare, famine. So when you hear that there is a famine in the land, you know that this is a time when God is judging his people for their sin. This is a covenant curse. And also, there's something else that's negative. 
It says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, which immediately you're like, ding, 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 I know that. That's, that's David's birthplace. It says, he and his wife, or sorry, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, generally, after the conquest, when you hear people leaving the promised land, is that generally a, a positive thing or a negative? It's a negative, right? It's something that they shouldn't have done. To stay in the land was a sign of faith in God's promise. To leave the land was an act of disbelief. Abraham left the land twice, or Abraham and then Isaac left the land to go down to Abimelech to sojourn there, and always ended badly. They always had to come back. So here we have all these sort of, this, this negative setting. But then we get into the book, uh, before we dive into the story, there is something that is important for you to understand. Otherwise, the book of Ruth really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that is that you have to understand something about what's called now the Leveret Laws that God inscribed in Deuteronomy 25. In fact, if you turn there really quickly, you can see it's just a short passage, verses 5 through 10. But... You can see even the heading says, Laws Concerning Leveret Marriage. Now, what is this leveret marriage all about? Well, instead of just reading, I'm just going to briefly explain what it was about. If a man in Israel died without having a son, then the nearest relative in the Hebrew, he would be referred to as a goel, which in some versions is translated a kinsman redeemer, in the book of Ruth, in the ESV, it's just translated Redeemer. But the Hebrew word is goel. Uh, that uh, nearest relative, that kin, was to take action to help his relative. In other words, he was to redeem his relative who had fallen into you know, trouble here because his line was going to die out. He didn't have any sons. So he was obligated to marry that man, his relative's widow, and to bear at least a son through her who would then inherit the family property and carry on the family line on the uh, the family line on that property now this was a this was um, something that had to be prescribed because it was difficult like <laughs> this person would bear children but the children wouldn't be counted as his and they would take they would carve out a portion of the family property for them so the tendency in our carnality would be to not do this because it was costly, it was sacrificial, right? So God told them they were to do this as an act of mercy and love for your, your brother, your relative. If the relative refused to do so because it was hard, there was this ceremony where he was to be publicly humiliated. The, the woman who he refused to marry would actually spit in his face before the elders. And there was this ceremony where his sandal would be taken off, which we don't understand exactly why, but it just says that his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal, and spit in his face. Right? It was, uh, this man would be publicly humiliated because he was doing something disgraceful by refusing to marry his brother's widow. Now, leveret marriage is actually reflected before the, the Old Covenant law. In Genesis 38, do you remember? Judah has these sons. One of Judah's sons marries a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And then the son is 
dies. And Judah says, you know, marry to the next son, marry Tamar to raise up children for your brother. And then he dies. And Judah refuses to give his other his remaining son for fear of that son dying, right? So leveret marriage was not something that, that God invented in the Old Covenant law. It was actually a practice that scholars say you can actually see in extra biblical literature of that time was actually pretty widely practiced, but God designated it for his people in the Old Covenant law. And you see it reflected in that, that um, question that the Sadducees thought they were so smart to ask Jesus, you know, man married, you know, or a woman married a man, and then they died, married his relative, and, you know, he had, she had seven of the relatives, went in the resurrection, whose wife will she be, right? That's all based upon these laws. Well, these laws turn out to be right at the heart of the book of Ruth, these laws of redemption, of kinsman redemption, particularly the element of leveret marriage, all right? Now, to get into the book of Ruth, chapter 1, there's only four chapters, right? It's a short book. So if you go to Ruth 1, you can kind of follow along here. A man named Elimelech from Bethlehem in Judah, he dies along with his two sons while he's sojourning in the land of Moab. His widow, Elimelech's widow, she is an Israelite from Bethlehem of Judah, name is Naomi, she decides she's going to return to her hometown, Bethlehem, with one of her son's widows, a Moabite, right? Her sons had intermarried with the Moabites. Again, not a positive thing, but the Lord uses it for good. This Moabite widow of Naomi's son, Ruth, refuses to leave her, commits to her and to her God, and to return with her to the land of Israel, to Bethlehem. Chapter 2, Ruth goes to glean, which means that God again had ordained this in the Old Covenant law, that when you, reaped, when you harvested your fields, there was inevitably the harvesters would drop pieces you know, and leave them behind. You can imagine a field kind of scattered sheaves, different places. Gleaning was essentially the, I always call it the Old Covenant, equivalent of collecting aluminum cans out of your, you know, the guys that come through and take your, it was that, it was just very subsistence type of thing to help out the poor. They were allowed to come along and pick up the extra sheaves. And that's what Ruth does because of they're impoverished. So this Moabite widow goes out to the fields just to pick up some sheaves for her and Naomi to eat because they, they're left without uh, any husbands and you know, in that day, that meant destitution. The owner of the land, Boaz, takes notice, comes to the field, sees Ruth, takes notice of her character. So it's not her beauty, per se. He notices that she's out there collecting for her mother-in-law. And she's a Moabite, right? So he, he notices her character and he blesses her for her hesed, her, her loyalty to her mother-in-law, her steadfast care for her mother-in-law. And he's generous to her. He sends her home with a generous amount of, of uh, grain. And then you get home. Now, I want you to actually turn here. If you look in chapter 2 and you get to the end, this is another one. You know, the Old Testament books, they're really 
They're not just spiritually rich. They're literary gems. Like I told you about the story where you go through and then the end of the story, you're, it reveals who this Levite was. It was the grandson of Moses, right? That's like a, a negative literary uh, feature. It's powerful, but it has a negative point. Well, here, the same sort of thing happens. You hear about this man, Boaz. Um, Ruth happens to be in her fee- in his field. He notes her. He gives. He's generous to her. She has found favor, and she's been noticed by him, found favor in his eyes because of her covenant faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And you get to the end, and it even comes across... It even comes across in the English text, right? She gets home. She... She says this to her mother-in-law in verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? And you can just imagine, just imagine like a scene in a, you know, in a movie. She, Ruth comes in, she's tired. She sets down this, and Naomi, whoa, what field did you work in today, right? And uh, she got so much. That was not normal. It'd be like a guy coming home with, you know, a truckload of aluminum cans. You're like, whoa, what houses were you at today? You know, like, what happened? This is what happened. She says, he said, blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law, and it comes across here, everything is loaded to the end of the sentence. Do you see it? The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now, that doesn't pop to you as the English reader because you don't know who Boaz is. But it's revealed in the next line. It says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose, the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. One of our Goels, our Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer. So she's saying, the Lord has not forgotten us because this man is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And right, think about Leverett Laws. A man dies, has no sons to carry on the line. The old covenant law commanded that a near relative would marry the widow and raise up children for her, right? So that's what Naomi's realizing. Oh, this man who's taken notice of you and whose field you were today is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And she, you know, like any good mother-in-law, the, the wheels are turning, right? And she's like, ah. And so that leads me into chapter 2, or 3, right? Chapter 3, Ruth, under the instruction of her mother-in-law, of course, Ruth doesn't know about Leverett Laws, so her mother kind of sets her up, right? Here's what you do. She went to Boaz while he was sweet, sleeping on the threshing floor. Some people think something untoward happened in this chapter, but I don't think that's the case. It is... It is in some ways certainly romantic, right? But she goes, she lays down at his feet on the threshing floor and uncovers his feet. Why do you think she uncovered his feet? Yeah, what if your kids came in and uncovered your feet at night with the heat off? You'd be like, what is going on? And then he sits up and he finds a woman laying at his feet. Now, of course, that, that would be in some ways scandalous for a woman to be there with a man alone at night. Threshing floors are actually often a place where prostitution took place. But but there's nothing, no hint of immorality here. She is coming in this way 
because it seems that in no other context could she approach him about this matter. She she basically asks him to fulfill the role of a goel for her. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a goel, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for my family, right? Now he knows. He knows what that means. He agrees to do it because he's a righteous man, right? But, and here's again where this is such a literary gem. In your typical romantic comedy, you get to this point, a romantic movie, everything seems like it's going well, and then what happens? Something bad happens. Well, and that's what happens here. He says, but, just when you think they're going to get together, live happily ever after, there is a, a redeemer closer than I. There's a, a closer relative who has to, by God's law, be given the opportunity to fulfill the obligation first. And the reader's like, no! And you're left with you know, a whole bundle of emotions. What's going to happen? And that leads you to the fourth chapter where Boaz approaches the closer relative about his obligation. This relative refuses to marry Ruth. And so you know, Boaz obviously doesn't press him too hard. He says, okay, well then I will, I will marry her. You even see the sandal ritual take place in the text that we saw in Deuteronomy 25. It's not quite as dramatic as it was supposed to be, but they did some kind of sandal ritual. And then the book ends uh, kind of like that story in Judges where it reveals at the end that Moses, this is a uh, grandson of Moses. You get to the end of the book of Ruth, and, and you could find yourself saying at the end of the book of Ruth, what is the point of all this? I mean, it's a great story, but why is it here in the Bible? You know, what <laughs> what is the point of it all? And you get to the end, and you dramatically find out what the point is, because it says, it ends. Now, these are the generations of Perez. You're like, what? What does Perez have to do with Ruth and Boaz and their child that they've had, Obed? And it gives you a genealogy, and the last word of the line, or word of the book, is David. And you realize that Obed, born to Boaz of Bethlehem and his Moabite wife, turns out to be the grandfather, or, or the father of Obed, who is the grandfather of David. And so, this leads us into the teaching of the book. Now, I want to pick up on that, but after laying some groundwork here, first of all, anyone studying the book of Ruth recognizes that the, the Hebrew word said, which is often translated in your Bibles as covenant faithfulness or loyal love to a covenant partner is the idea, right? That this is rife throughout the book. The word is mentioned many times about different people, but in contrast, striking contrast to the book of Judges, which was all about the opposite, right? (laughs) Israel's gross covenant unfaithfulness. Here in this book, it's all about hesed. It's all about covenant faithfulness. And it applies to all the characters, right? Ruth's covenant faithfulness to Naomi and Naomi to Ruth. Boaz's has said toward uh, toward Ruth. He keeps covenant. The, the the covenant law had laid out these leveret laws. He's faithful to her. And Ruth, 
being faithful to her mother-in-law and going through this whole process. And underneath it all is God's covenant faithfulness to his people, because what's the whole point of this? Raising up a king for Israel, right? So in the midst of the time of the judges. So has said covenant loyalty is all through here. It's, it's a positive picture. And it's presented to Israel like, look, in the midst of the book, the book of Judges is like, this is what covenant unfaithfulness looks like. Ruth is, this is what covenant faithfulness looks like. There's also the theme of providence is, is huge in this book. From the beginning to the end. I mean, none of this would have happened if Elimelech hadn't gone down to Moab. Uh, None of it would have happened if the two sons hadn't died. None of it would have happened. And you could just go all the way through, right? But it particularly comes out in chapter 2. If you look in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, notice what it says. Because God is never, you never see the Lord said or the Lord did in this book. You never see that. But you see, you're supposed to see his fingerprints all over this story. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is a perfect example. It says, So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. You think all the fields in, around Bethlehem that she could have gone, right? Tons of them. says, sorry, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech, her relative. And then verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So do you see, the the writer is, he's implying, you're supposed to be startled by this. Of all the fields that Ruth could have ended up gleaning in, she gleaned in the field of Boaz, her close relative. And he, you know, he's normally a wealthy landowner. He's not going to be typically at, his various fields, you know, he probably goes and visits them on occasion, but he happens to be there on that day, that very field, that part of the field, and he notices her, right? So, you're supposed to see the fingerprints of God over all over that. This is God's providence here. And also, this theme of Goel, of kinsman redeemer, it's Boaz is a Goel to Naomi, out of his own covenant loyalty, But behind it is God, right? God providentially brought Ruth and Boaz together. And that was out of his own hesed. He was being faithful first to Naomi and Ruth, not to abandon them, but to raise up a redeemer for them. But also, more importantly, to his covenant people. Who, by the way, in the time of the judges, were they being faithful to him? No, they were grossly unfaithful to him. But in the midst of that time, he, out of his own hesed toward his wayward people, was raising up a redeemer for him, right? Now, from the perspective of the book, when you get to the end, you think of Boaz as the redeemer. He's the redeemer. He's the redeemer. But then you get to the end of the book and look at what it says in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. Let me read this. You tell me who is the Redeemer being identified here. You would think it'd be Boaz, but listen to what it says. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Who's the Redeemer? The child. Obed is the kinsman redeemer because this child the women are recognizing is going to restore the fortunes of this destitute family. And then he goes on to say, they named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And David would be a a goel in a sense. He would restore the fortunes of the whole nation, lost in chaotic oppression or a moral and spiritual apostasy under oppression by their enemies, God raises up a king, right? So that line at the very end, the problem articulated in the last line of judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how judges ends. Ruth begins, in the days that the judges judge, right? Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. And any reader of the New Testament knows exactly what's happened here. God, in the days of the judges, when there was no king, and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes, God was raising up a king. The line of David. So, And eventually. Exactly. And, and you know what the author didn't even know, right? <laughs> you know that the line of David was actually going to lead to a far greater king. The one announced, by the way, by the angel Gabriel to Mary, who would also be the ultimate Goel, a kinsman redeemer to all who believe in him, who take action on their behalf to restore their fortunes out of their misery and slavery, even though they were unfaithful to him. Do you see? So there is layer upon layer of profundity behind these books. And you can see the divine mind behind the books because... The thread, the storyline is a story of redemption that is tied into the next book and the next book and the next book all the way until you get to Matthew, right? Where it gives you this genealogy that's much longer than this. It includes this bit, but it's much longer. A genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Well, let's pray and ask that he would bless uh, our study of these books this morning. Father, we thank you for the, the glorious texts that you have given to us in Holy Scripture. We thank you for the books of Judges and Ruth. We pray that you would deepen our grasp of their meaning, as well as what's in them. Not only what's in them, but what it means for us as your new covenant people. And that we would, even as we were just talking about, be able to see not only things like human sin and divine judgment against us for our sin, but also your own character of mercy and faithfulness and grace and how you have acted on our behalf to redeem us through Christ so that we would, through our study of these Old Testament books, gain an even greater appreciation for the person and work of our Lord. So we commit our time to you now. We ask that you bless it richly to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.